Hello and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host and welcome to episode 150. So I want to take you back um, and share two stories of two, I would say two meetings that took place in my denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Um, and one of those took place in the late 1990s, and the other one took place about 2019, so about four years ago. Like a lot of mainline Protestant denominations, um, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ uh, really wrestled with the whole issue of um, the role of LGBTQ persons in the life of the church. And I think that was very common in disciples of that time period was to really come together and kind of debate and not debate is probably not this too strong a word, but at least to talk about the issue. What are the, what is it that we believe? And I remember watching a video and it was a video of with two Bible scholars uh, from each side of the issue. Um, and they came together and these were people who actually who worked together to kind of, uh, kind of working out their respective viewpoints and came together and they shared what they believed. And, um, and there was kind of a lot of discussion about this. There was even, I remember the, the denomination even put out um, resources for, for congregations to really kind of wrestle with this, um, the issue. Now, Personally, I think that that was a good thing. The, the, um, this is an issue that is a very personal issue for a lot of reasons. And um, it was important for us as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ to really figure out what is it that we think about this issue? What does the Bible say about this? And what how should Christians act um, when it when you're dealing with this issue. Now, there are a lot of people who don't think that, that that really you want to talk about this issue, at least, and and some of their reasons are, re, are reasonable um, because of course it is a personal issue. And especially for people who are LGBTQ, it can feel that people are discussing people's lives and in, in a way they are. And so, that's kind of where we were in the late 1990s. In 2019, um, the denomination, uh, there was a resolution um, that was put forward, and, and this is a non-binding resolution, but it was just talking about the role of the church, the denomination, and welcoming uh, transgender um, persons into the life of the church. And it was approved, and that's a good thing. But it was also something that was a little bothersome and that there was no debate, no real talk about things, no wondering where does this, how do we, what does this mean for us as Christians? What does it mean to be, you know, as kind of the, the scripture says, male and female, what does that mean when you're talking about that with trans, uh, transgender individuals? We didn't really discuss what it meant or, and how do Christians respond and react and think about this issue? And actually, that's what I'm trying to get at, is that no one we weren't really doing a whole lot of thinking about what does this all mean? And that seems to be an issue throughout uh, American Christianity this day, whether it is progressive or conservative, but there isn't a whole lot of thinking going on. There seems to be a lot of reacting and a lot of following kind of what are the the political or winds of the day, but there isn't very much thinking about what does this mean as a Christian? And thinking as a Christian doesn't mean that we all come up with the same answer, but it does mean that we think about what does it mean as people who follow Jesus, how do we think on this issue? Our guest today is David Watson. Um, he is 
uh, the Dean of Academic Affairs at United Theological Seminary um, in um, Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and I have to stress because there are, it's another United Theological Seminary here in the Twin Cities, and it is not that one, um, but uh, a seminary in Ohio. Um, and he wrote an article a few months ago in Firebrand magazine about what it means to think. What does it mean to think as a Christian? Um, and it's also available on the Firebrand uh, podcast. And so I do hope that you will um, take some time. Either there, there will be links in the description um, for the article and also for the, um, the uh, podcast itself. But the article was uh, named The Cultivation of the Christian Mind. And in that, he, um, Watson, bases his article on uh, a book by the author uh, and a protege of C.S. Lewis, Harry Balmars, um, from the book The Christian Mind. And actually, I have this book. I've been reading it. Um, a friend of mine uh, suggested reading it, so I have. And he talks about his whole point is about what does it mean to think Christianly? And this is something that Balmars says in the book. And this is from page 44. To think secular, secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related, directly or indirectly, to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. So in this episode, I'll be talking to uh, David Watson about why is it that as Christians, we aren't thinking Christianly anymore? And how can we do that again? Um, I uh, This is the second time that uh, David is on the podcast. He was here um, last year. And um, a little bit about who he is. He is... Um, an elder in, as I said, he's actually, I should begin that he is um, the academic dean and vice president for academic affairs at United Theological Seminary, also a professor in New Testament. Um, he teaches courses um, at United in New Testament Greek, also courses on uh, church renewal and Bible uh, and courses in the Bible and uh, disability. Um, he uh, is, um, as I said, also um, uh, an ordained elder in the Global Methodist Church. Um, before that, he was an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. Um, his most recent book is Scripture and the Life of God, While the Bible Matters Today More Than Ever, uh, and that is put out by Seedbed. Um, he is the lead editor at Firebrand Magazine um, and also one of the hosts of the Firebrand podcast. And we will be talking about what it means in this day and age for Christians to actually think. With that, let's hear from Dr. David Watson. Well, David, thank you for coming back on um, to the podcast. It's it's a pleasure to be on, Dennis. And as you know, as I was just saying before we started recording, I really appreciate your voice and your commitment to open dialogue. I appreciate the way that you comport yourself in the public square, and I think we share some of those kind of old school liberal commitments in that way. Yeah, it's I worry as we were talking that those type of that commitment to liberalism um, in that kind of classical sense is right. dying out. Um, and I, that's worrisome um, for our, our culture, I think in general, if we, it, it is yeah. worrisome because, because what's the alternative, 
right? The alternative is a kind of moral absolutism that I don't see I don't see a good outcome to that if it's played out to its logical extremes. No. I mean, I, I think that there's a reason that the Enlightenment, I mean, the Enlightenment pretty much came out of the whole 30 years war, you know, Treaty of Westphalia, you know, wars, famine, things like that don't, don't really, they're, they're bad. And, yeah. and there were reasons yeah. why we thought maybe we don't want to do that anymore. Right. And I think we've forgotten that. We think that we can be this without any cost to it. And, um, as, I think as, that's you know, the thing in, in, in economics is probably true in life. There's always trade-offs and we haven't, I, we haven't yet as a society understood what the trade-offs are and the trade-offs are quite immense. And I think a lot of people, um, maybe folks who, who are skeptical of kind of classical liberalism as an ideology think, well, that that's simply a recipe for moral relativism. I don't think that's right, though. I mean, I think you can have strongly held convictions, and I know you do. Mm-hmm. I have strongly held convictions. We can respect the convictions of other people, even if we disagree with the, their convictions. Mm-hmm. And that's really the only way that we make intellectual progress. And, and if we want to say moral progress, too, we could say that. But... Um, you know, I was reading a book by Peter Kraft, who is a Roman Catholic philosopher and apologist. He's written a four-volume work called Socrates' Children, and mm. it's kind of a layperson's history of philosophy. So I'm reading through this, trying to fill some gaps in my own knowledge. And he talks a little bit about, in what actually in, in talking one about the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, he, he talks about, he brings up, Hegel, for some reason, Hegel had this idea of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, okay? Mm -hmm. And he said, basically, that's how all of history proceeds. We have a thesis. We have something pushing back hard against that thesis. But out of that pushback comes something new, a third thing that's neither the thesis nor the antithesis. And and Kraft says... um, that's basically how all people learn all things. In other words, that's how we make intellectual progress. Um, I, I'm writing a book right now on the history of biblical work in Methodism, and I see that happening, actually. You know, you can see that happening across time. And so I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, I'm not a full-bore Hegelian, but I do think on this point he was he was certainly correct. So your article, um, which is in um, Firebrand Magazine, is the cultivation of the Christian mind. And yes. You started off with an it was an I think an interesting sentence or sentences. Theology matters. The Bible matters. Christian praxis matters. I put these words on my tombstone when I'm pushing up daisies. If we do not think like Christians, we will not yeah. act like Christians. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the kind of what made you want to write this essay and even to start it off the way that you did? It's been, it's been on my mind for a long time. Actually, I've been kind of kicking around these ideas for probably 20 years. At some point I'll actually write a book on this. I don't know. Um, my, you know, my, I don't know when I'll get to it, but hopefully before I die and my, you know, my students, um, kind of make fun of me because I'm always encouraging them, probably ad nauseum, to think Christianly. Uh, think like Christians. Paul Paul talks about the renewing of the mind, right? And so what that indicates is that there's something wrong with our minds apart from the re- renewal by the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, if our minds are actually renewed if somehow sin has affected our minds and makes us think in distorted ways then there are particular christian ways of thinking about things but our first instinct is not normally even among christians my observation even within myself so i'm not excluding myself from this our first instinct is not to think christianly we we tend to think pragmatically and more and more i think we think tribally and we think politically. 
And so the question is, what are your instincts? Like, have you trained your mind to think in a Christian way? And then how do you do that? So I'll, I'll, I could go on, but I'll stop there. And you base this off of a book um, and a student, uh, actually a student of C.S. Lewis. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was, and as we said before the podcast, it's a book um, that a fellow pastor of mine has also lifted up. Could you say a little bit more about that book, which is called the Christian, um, the Christian Mind? Yeah, um, it's by a, as you said, a student of C.S. Lewis named Harry Blameyers. And he writes in a way that's very similar to C.S. Lewis. It is, yeah. In the, in the same kind of style. And so in that sense, it's a delight to read. Um, but he talks about it, and this is written in England, an ostensibly Christian country in 1963, certainly far more Christian than it would be today, which actually has a state church still. And he says there is no longer a Christian mind. He's writing primarily about England in his own day, although America bleeds into it sometimes. He says, we, we don't think like Christians about really anything anymore. You know, we, we think, I mean, an example in the current context is, you know, a lot of church rhetoric has to do with, say, business models. Mm. Um, at one time I was in a for a long time, I was in a denomination, and a document came out. I don't want to throw people under the bus, so I'll just say a document came out that um, was talking about what we need to do to move the church forward after a long period of decline. Okay, this is this, these are the steps we need to take. But the document was almost entirely untheological. You know, if we can just get the right young leaders in there and train them in leadership techniques, if we can just get the right business models in, if we could just get the right techniques for church growth, then maybe we can slow this decline. The, the idea wasn't even to reverse it. It was just to slow things down. And I thought that's completely unacceptable for a variety of reasons. One, because the solution to any problems in the church, first and foremost, have to be theological solutions. Mm -hmm. If God is the power behind all that we do in the church, then before we, we go to pragmatic models or whatever that, that may mean, we have to go to theological models. We have to think theologically about what we're doing in the life of the church and see where we've gone wrong. But secondly, I just don't accept the narrative that decline in the church is inevitable. There have been ebbs and flow, flows in American Christianity many times. We had the first Great Awakening. We had the second Great Awakening. And I don't see why um, it is a resurgence of Christianity is impossible, especially if you if you believe in God and you believe that that God's will is that people will come to Christ and that they'll know him as their savior. Um, why do we why do we expect that the future is inevitably one of decline? I, I reject that narrative. How would you define the Christian mind. What what does it mean to think Christianly? Um, so I was reading a book called Biblical Inspiration. Maybe that wasn't the book, but it was a book by I. Howard Marshall. I've been working through his stuff recently, um, or some of his stuff recently. And he talks about a mind nourished on the gospel. Okay, and I, I love the way that he puts that, a mind nourished on the gospel. And so, how do we nourish our minds on the gospel? Well, for one thing, um, I would, as a Methodist, I would say we uh, draw upon the means of grace. And I know that's not unique to Methodism. It's just something that my tradition emphasizes. So, we draw upon the means of grace. What does that mean? It means that we consistently pray. We consistently read the Bible. We consistently uh, go to public worship. We fast um, or abstain from other things in our lives. We um, 
conference with other Christians. In other words, we meet for the upbuilding, for purposes of upbuilding our faith and accountability with other Christians. These are means of grace. Um, we receive the Eucharist. Um, and by doing this, what we're asking is that God will work in our lives and shape our minds in particular ways. Now, I have my opinions, certainly, about what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give an example of that. One of the issues that is about to kick us in the teeth in the North American church is what's called medical aid in dying. Okay. Mm-hmm. We used to call this assisted suicide, but everything has to be euphemistic now. And so we call it medical aid in dying. And I think the church has to be exceedingly on guard about this. Okay. Because the pragmatic approach is to say, well, these people aren't happy. And they're costing the healthcare system money. They're costing their relatives money. They want to die. Why shouldn't we kill them? They won't put it in in terms those stark, but that's the logic of it. They're they're suffering, and and there's no possible good that can come from suffering. And it, the merciful thing to do would be to kill them. You know, kind of like we do with our pets. And I I want to say. No, that that is not a Christian approach. I don't expect non-Christians to think like Christians. Let me put it that way. But but that is not a Christian approach to human life or to this issue. In Christianity, we believe that human life is inherently valuable, that you can't put a price on it, um, that suffering can, in fact, be redemptive. Um, that God is the one who orders the days of our lives. Um, or like Stanley Hauerwas used to say, you know, Christians, um, I'll, I'll paraphrase, but if Christians are remembered as people who don't kill their young and their old people, uh, we will have done well. So there are there are a variety of issues, if we're thinking theologically, that should give us pause about medical aid and dying. But the world that doesn't share our outlook, um, the world that doesn't share our vision of human life, the world that doesn't share our commitment to divine revelation, the world that does not share our theological anthropology is not 100 percent not going to view things in these ways. I don't expect them to. I expect there's going to be a full court press on this coming probably within the next 10 years. But what scares me is when church has been the knee on this stuff. That mm. I find completely unacceptable and kind of frightening. Does that give you a good illustration, Dennis, of what I'm talking about? So we just have to think through these Christianly. Um, what, under what circumstances is it appropriate for Christians to take human life, if there are any? Mm-hmm. And how do we apply those criteria in, in, criteria in cases where people are, say, terminally ill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's um, it's interesting following that uh, what's been going on, especially in, um, with uh, in, in Canada with that um, law, um, medical assistance and dying, and how and how it is. I mean, I, I think just to to put it very bluntly, I think we probably put more safeguards when about dealing with our pets than we do with how this law has been treated. It's, it's quite far ranging. Um, yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, and especially in Western Europe and Canada now, it's really gone quite far. And I think that there are, you know, there are, are, are deep questions on the end of life. Um, though I think that this law has been used beyond end of life. I mean, it doesn't yeah. really even go there. But I think, you know, one of the things that I have a question is, why do you think, and and this is, uh, I, someone else that I've talked to recently uh, wrote an article about this. Why have churches, do you think, as you've, you would have put it, bent the knee on this issue and not challenged it? I think in particular, Protestants don't have enough have a deep enough theological well in most denominations to deal with this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the Roman Catholic Church, for example, 
has a well-established body of doctrine, and they have a well-established body of teaching on the nature of human life. Now, you can agree with them or not agree with them, you know, on these issues, but it's it's clear where the Roman Catholic Church stands on these matters, and some of their best minds have been engaged in thinking through these issues related to the beginning and end of human life. I don't see many Protestants group do, Protestant groups doing that work. I do see individual theologians doing it, and some very fine individual theologians and ethicists doing this kind of work. But with regard to denominations, with regard to particular churches, I really don't see it. We might have we might pass re- resolutions at our assemblies. We might have short statements in our books of church law about such things. But an issue such as medical aid and dying requires really deep, sensitive, and mature theological reflection. It requires a sustained effort, not just by people, but by churches to say, what is going to be our witness on these matters? I think churches are so worried about losing people now, they don't want to, at least some churches, they don't want to generate controversy. They're afraid they'll lose people if they take a hard line on these matters. Um, But but the bottom line, Dennis, is I think that most of our Protestant denominations just as churches have not done the deep work that's necessary. Do you think that there's been a sort of um, for lack of a better word, anti-intellectualism that has taken root among Protestant churches? Yes. Um, I do think that's right. And I think part of it has to do with the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of this is there is so much information out there that is so easily accessible, some of it good, some of it bad, that we don't spend the same time we used to spend in books. And books force your mind to slow down. They force you to think through issues, often in detail. And so, you know, one of the things I noticed in my 20 or so years in theological education is it used to be the case that if we would bring in, say, a big-name scholar, you would have a lot of people show up for a public lecture. And that's just not the case now. I mean, you really would have to get a huge rock, like, I don't even know, but people are simply less interested in ideas than they used to be, it seems Mm to me. One of the things, and and this is somewhat related, but I actually read an article, it was strangely just around the time when he died by uh, Tim Keller, called The Passing of Forgiveness. Yeah. And... um, he was just basically talking about how our culture has become less willing to have an ethic of forgiveness and what that has, why is that happening? And one of the reasons he thinks is because of kind of a culture of the therapeutic on kind of focusing on the self, um, which then leads to me to talk about um, issues on sexuality. And obviously for me, that's been, as a gay man, that's always been a, obviously a personal issue. Um, but it's always been interesting to talk about that issue because there's always seems to be a f- um, talk about harm and, and, and things to that extent that almost makes really discussing it impossible. Um, and it's interesting for me personally how things have changed Maybe 20 some years ago in my denomination, the Disciples of Christ, like a lot of pro, uh, mainline Protestant denominations were having kind of discussions on, on uh, um, homosexuality. And there was um, a discussion actually between two people. Um, one, uh, Judith Hoke Ray, who um, is a uh, Bible scholar um, and a lesbian, and um, Doug Skinner uh, came kind of from an evangelical background. Um, and a pastor, theologian as well. And basically how they talked was really to discuss with each other. And um, 
you know, I've since become good friends with Doug, and we've talked a lot about how Judith always wanted to enter into discussions in the Bible. Let's have a Bible discussion. Let's enter into what Scripture is talking about. They really had a discussion about this. Yeah, sure. And it was, and this whole issue, I mean, it was welcoming. And the funny thing is, I think that that actually helped Doug change his mind on the issue. But it wasn't from, you know, just kind of someone beating them over the head, but actually engaging with someone that he didn't initially agree with. Fast forward to a few years ago, I was at their, uh, our last General Assembly. We had a resolution that was kind of talking about um, transgender issues. I totally understand that. I, I think that it's, again, an important issue. But there was no discussion. It just kind of sailed through. Yeah. And it bothered me. And I, But I fear I'm kind of this weird unicorn in that, other people would say, well, we just don't need to have discussion because, well, this is obvious. And it's like, really? I mean, we, we do need to. I mean, what? how are we dealing with this? I mean, because, again, how I came to my own acceptance of my own sexuality was through the Bible. And it was through digging into the Bible, looking into it, really studying, understanding it. And I feel like too much today is... Uh, well, if I agree with this in, in the larger culture, then we should just go ahead and do this. And it feels like that's not helpful. And I know that there are people that will say that, well, you know, there are people who are being hurt if we don't do this. And I, 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 I understand that to a point, but I also feel that as Christians, we're not doing due diligence if we don't really wrestle with the issue and help people to work through this and maybe not everyone will agree, but it feels like we're not doing what it means to be church. I think to start out with the ethic, you know, with regard to your question, Dennis, the ethic of forgiveness has fallen on hard times. Then mm-hmm. again, I'm not sure that's ever been that. Let me just say, I think that's always been one of the more challenging aspects of the Christian life to forgive, um, to love your enemies. I don't think you can do that apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But I do think God gives us the power to do such things, but we have to be open to it. We have to ask for it. With regard to the language of harm uh, that you mentioned, I do think that that. So this. My understanding is that this goes back to a 20th century philosopher, Herbert Marcuse. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Marcuse had was essentially that we have to suppress certain ideas so that there could be real freedom. Now, the question immediately rises, of course, who gets to decide which ideas you oppress? Is it Marcuse? Uh, should his ideas be be suppressed? Well, no, of course not. Um, but this has been extremely influential, I would say, over the last 20 years. I don't think it was nearly as influential during his lifetime. But over the last 20 years, I would say it has become extremely influential. In the book, uh, you know, there's a really good book uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And they talks a little bit about this. Um, and it's by... Um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they say is that along with this notion that language is violence has come a decline in the characteristic of resilience. Mm -hmm. So we're not teaching children something that they need to thrive in the world today, which is resilience. Understand it's obvious that language can be hurtful to people. And as Christians, we want to avoid that to the extent that that's possible. And in some ways, um, it is inevitable that language is going to hurt people because these are very personal kinds of issues for us, whether we're talking about sexuality or end-of-life care or abortion or whatever it may be, war. Um, These are very personal issues 
for many of us. And so the so at times we are going to hear things we don't like and we're going to have emotional reactions to those things. But the idea that we have to shut down dialogue because language is inherently violent, I think does, or certain language is inherently violent, does an injustice to the nature of language. It does an injustice to what real violence is. And it inhibits intellectual progress. And in my opinion, it inhibits the common good. Mm. I'll stop there if. If there's anything you want me to elaborate on, I will, but I don't want to monologue too much. No, no, that's okay. But how do you think that this hurts the common good? Because it keeps us, as as you just suggested, it keeps us from having conversations that we need to have. Mm -hmm. For example, on transgenderism, is transgenderism um, an unmitigated good? Or under what circumstances, I mean, the questions that we should ask is, first of all, is this a good to begin with? And secondly, if it is a good to begin with, under what circumstances is it a good? And what is the appropriate way to approach it? Mm -hmm. And all these um, ideas get mixed together um, in sort of the muddle of online debate. Issues from uh, having compassion for people with gender dysphoria to puberty blockers for minors, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we need to sort through these matters and think through them from a Christian perspective so that we can figure out what our churches position. Churches need to do this work. Churches need to do this work. They need groups of people who do this work on their behalf who will then bring these back to our general conferences, general assemblies, whatever they may be, so that we can ratify them. The churches need to do this work because these are complex issues. You know, you it, it's not really deniable that some people experience gender dysphoria. They feel like they're born the wrong gen sex. Mm-hmm. So what's the Christian response to that? That's the question. How do we think about this as Christians and how do we respond to this as Christians? What do you think is and, and how especially in in this day and age. And um, you brought up in your essay some talk about um, Charles Taylor and um, which then led me to think about um, Andrew Root, um, who has also drawn a lot of his work from Charles Taylor um, and kind of living in an age that we do that is very secular um, how do we kind of create communities that really offer and can have space for the transcendent when we're thinking about these issues? Because I think it is so easy to kind of live in our, in in the world that we live in and use the language of business or use the language, especially increasingly of politics and think that we're using we're being Christian when, well, no, we're just kind of using whatever is the political, um, right. Kind of we're outsourcing ideology. our ethics. We're yeah. outsourcing our ethics to political parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why, I, and why do we, why is that? Why are we doing that? Why are we allowing ourselves to be, to outsource that to political parties, regardless on the left or the right? So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Charles Taylor's work because the book is called A Secular Age, but I've I've always thought that's a little bit of a misnomer because what he describes in the book after sort of the collapse of the Christian worldview monopoly in the West mm-hmm. is what he calls the Nova effect. The Nova effect is is it's not just that people stopped being Christian and started being atheists, okay? It's that there was kind of an explosion, and now there was this new galaxy of options available to people in the West. So you could be an agnostic, you could be an atheist, you could be a liberal Christian, you could be a conservative Christian, you could be Wiccan, you could be neo-pagan, Buddhist, 
you know, whatever it is that whatever option appeals to you is something um, is now an option is like a real live option for you. So this notion of the Nova effect, I think, is very significant. In the face of the Nova effect, I'm not sure, and and I can't really blame churches for this, but we haven't really known how to respond. And I think at the height of the ecumenical movement, and Vatican II came out of this, you know, idea, the, the notion is let's just kind of sand all the rough edges off of our traditions. Let's let's diminish the particularity of our traditions as much as possible, and let's call that ecumenism. Okay, so let's let's just go for the least common denominator. Well, when you're doing that, you're not really going to think in particularly Christian ways about these kinds of issues. Mm. And it just opens the door for rank pragmatism uh, for things like um, and, and I'm not against business models. What I what I'm against are business models as kind of your first move. Your first move as a Christian needs to be theological. And then there may be. Uh, elements from the secular culture that can be helpful to us in churches. Okay. Um, rather than sanding off all the rough edges of our tradition, rather than moving to the lowest common denominator, I think a better ecumenism for Christians is one rooted in the church's creedal tradition. Here is a robust vision of God that we can all agree upon. God is one God in three persons who became incarnate in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and after three days rose from the dead. That's your starting point as a Christian, because that's what the church has always confessed. I know that there have been, you know, groups throughout Christian history that had heterodox takes on these matters. But by and large, that is the faith that Vincent Vincent of Larens talked about, the faith that has been confessed always, everywhere, and by all. And that is that faith. It's the Nicene Chalcedonian faith. And I think that would be a good starting point for ecumenism. Here's where we agree. We confess this vision of God. Now, we may disagree on a, on a whole host of other things. We may disagree on church governance. We may disagree on matters related to ordination and who can be ordained and who can't be ordained. But we agree on this. And once we find that point of agreement, then we can work forward towards a common good. We know where we can cooperate and where we're probably not going to cooperate, and and we can move on from there. Um, But I think the absence of that theological center has been really bad for the churches. It's been bad for... um, Methodists of all kinds. It's been bad for the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, if you just listen to Bishop Robert Barron talks about these things, he 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 describes the Catholicism of his youth as a kind of beige Catholicism, uh, not particularly interesting. Certainly not a robust vision of the life. Now, I don't agree with everything in the Roman Catholic Church, certainly, but I think Roman Catholics should be Catholic, <laughs> and so and I think Methodists should be Methodist. And congregationalists should should be congregationalists. And so um, because we haven't done that work, that theological work of establishing ourselves in the great tradition of Christian faith, I think that's cost us. And I think that has opened the door to certain real vulnerabilities. So that leads to a kind of a question about the particularity of Christianity yeah. and, and especially of, of the different parts of Christianity, because there seems to be a fear of that sense of particularity. Um, why? I mean, what, why, what is it that doesn't make us want to be Christian or, or to have that kind of Christian mind? Is it That's a, a great question, and I'd be interested if you have insights on this. I think part of it is we don't want to we don't want to be seen as um, reactionary. We don't want to be seen as kind of fundamentalistic. Um, I, you know, I'm really not sure. What What do you think about that question, Dennis? I think that that I think you're kind of on the right track. I think you know one of the things that I have heard a lot 
in, in my years is, you know, we don't want to be dogmatic. Um, and I think we think that to have sense of dogma or to have any sense of type of, of belief is to be narrow-minded. It's to be that you really just don't think about stuff, things. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. I mean, it can be. I, I think there are lots of people that are um, stuck in th- this is the way it is and can be very fundamentalist in their in their opinions and beliefs. But I, I tend to see those things kind of like the historic creeds um, more less as a, a, a wall um, and kind of like a boundary. Like, you know, if you're playing football or soccer or something that, you know, the, you have to play that within the bounds of that. Right. And right. within the bounds of that, there's a lot of freedom. I mean, you're you know, playing all over the place, but there is a certain boundary that says that can define who you are. And, right. and so I see that dogma as, as definition. I don't see it as a way of me not thinking um, because of, you know, but I think the the common way that we look at things is that to have these kind of central beliefs is to, is to be unthinking. And to me, I think it's actually the other way around when you don't have those, you kind of just kind of pick up what's ever the, the flavor of the month. And but um, because, because yeah. everyone is dogmatic about something. Exactly. We just we may are. not realize what it is. We probably don't realize our own dogmatism. Mm-hmm. I, I remember <clears throat> when I was a grad student, I went to a lecture and there were some people from a nearby university, some professors from a nearby university who had come by. And I don't even remember the topic of the lecture, but one of them was this kind of postmodernist guy. And he was talking about absolute claims and how terrible absolute claims are. And when people start making absolute claims, you better look out because that's when the danger really happens. And someone who was at the lecture asked him, is that an absolute claim? (laughs) And... Of course, he that that was uh, one of my former teachers, Billy Abraham, and and of course the person that he asked the question to was flummoxed by this. He apparently had never thought about this question before. He looked like kind of like you know when a dog hears a siren, it kind of turns its head sideways mm-hmm. like that, you know. Yeah. And and he said no, and then someone else in the room said, "Well, then it doesn't mean anything." So, you know, his he was actually making absolute claims. He just didn't realize it at the time. Everybody is dogmatic about something. The question is, what are you going to be dogmatic about? What are going to be the presuppositions that you're going to begin discourse with? And I think for Christians, one of our presuppositions has to be the vision of God that has been handed over to us through the historic church. Mm-hmm. We can disagree about a lot of things. We cannot disagree about that. I think that is just an essential component of Christian belief. In your essay, you talk a little bit about <clears throat> your worry about how some churches have adopted illiberal beliefs. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit about how really the Christian mind and all this is really part of the whole tradition of, of classical liberalism. What are some ways that you think that churches, denominations have adopted illiberal kind of beliefs? And what has that done? How has that affected that the church's witness? Well, for example, you mentioned um, in your tradition the, the lack of discussion around transgenderism. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I I have seen similar things happen recently in my former tradition of the United Methodist Church. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also happen on the conservative side quite Mm -hmm. easily. You know, I think some of what's happened in the Southern Baptist Convention recently um, has been illiberal, and they would, many of them would probably own that label uh, proudly. Um. Not all of them. Okay, so I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush. Um, But it is very easy for um, 
it is very easy for us to become moral absolutists and to refuse to entertain ideas with which we may disagree. I have strong convictions. You have strong convictions. I don't doubt that, and I respect that, actually. I want Christians to have strong convictions about things. But at the same time, I think we also have to have intellectual virtue, and we have to avoid intellectual vice. And intellectual virtue involves things like listening, um, coherence, just simply using good judgment on things, empathy. We can still end up disagreeing with people, but that doesn't. Um, but but first, we will have had to consider their perspectives from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to articulate their positions as well as they would articulate their positions in a way that they could agree with. Mm-hmm. And then, and only then, I think, have we really understood where they're coming from. Doesn't mean we end up agreeing with them. It does mean that we have given due consideration, real consideration, real thought, done the intellectual work necessary to understand where they're coming from. And out of that, you know, we can make intellectual progress. It was John Henry Newman, I I think, who said there are some things that can only be said after other things have been said. Mm -hmm. What that means is that we have to listen to other positions. We have to give real consideration to other positions. Um, And then, and only then, can we really make intellectual progress. What do you think is... Where do you think, basically, I guess, as a society, as we are kind of dealing with trying to think Christianly, um, and you mentioned what was going on... um, within the Southern Baptist, because that's another kind of controversy that's also been a problem. Um, How, and, and, you know, where do you think that we're headed as a church, and I guess the big C church, in the next five to ten years, as we are grappling with all of these different issues, all these different changes in society, but yet we're not, it doesn't seem that there is a willingness to engage the other um yeah i fear where we're going is to a place of greater entrenchment and that's not that's not healthy and i don't think that serves the common good and i don't think that's a particularly helpful witness what i mean by entrenchment is sort of a refusal to engage you know at one level what the southern baptists do is none of my business i'm not a southern baptist And if the Southern Baptists make the decision through their processes of governance that they will not ordain women, they they can do that. And nobody has to be a Southern Baptist. Now, I recognize that there, there are people who really got hurt in this. There are people who are treated badly in this. There, there are places where, um, people's language has been uncharitable and unchristian about these matters okay so i get you know the interpersonal dynamics that are at play in all of this um when we have these controversies in the church they can be extremely painful when churches are disfellowshipped that is extremely painful um but at the same time there are going to be churches that organize organize their lives in ways that I disagree with or that you disagree with. That's just a fact. Okay. And so I think we, you know, we make decisions. Do I want to be a Southern Baptist? Well, in light of X decision, either the answer is either yes or no. And if I can't be a Southern Baptist anymore, if my convictions are so strong that I can't do that anymore, then I need to find a different faith community to affiliate with. Mm-hmm. And I know that's that's sometimes easier said than done. Moving faith communities is very difficult. I've done that. You've done that. It's painful and you lose friendships and these kinds of things. But if these are really matters of conviction, then we, we do these things. But what I fear is... Um, that within Christian communities, we're going to become, we're going to develop these bunker mentalities. Uh, 
and um, that's going to that's going to prevent us from doing the kind of intellectual and ecumenical work that we need to do. If you've been through the church wars, you know, and you have, and uh, I have, you know, the United Methodist Church right now is in the in the midst of a very bitter divide. Uh, there's enough blame to go around uh, in in this regard. I have my own opinions about why this happened, but I'll just, you know, I'll set those aside for the moment. Um, if you've been through the church wars, it's very easy to develop a kind of bunker mentality. It's it's very easily to let easy to let your scars define you, and it's, and those scars define not only you as a person, but how you engage other people in the public square. You mentioned forgiveness earlier, and I think there has to be that. Well, you know, once we get on the other side of this, there has to be forgiveness. And to the extent that we can, there has to be reconciliation. We had to forgive each other. Um, none of us is completely blameless in any of this. And so, and Christ tells us to, Christ doesn't make it optional for us to forgive, right? He doesn't make it optional. He doesn't say love your enemies unless your enemies are are just really really bad, unless they're real jerks. You know, forgive other people unless unless they've really been out of line, then you don't have to. You know, that's not the command. So we have to figure out ways to do that and to begin to talk with one another, work with one another, and love one another. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've come to realize over the years is how much we want to make. Well, one, I think what we don't realize is how hard it is to be a Christian. Yeah. Um, that it really, you know, I keep always going back to the whole concept of the 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 scandal of the cross or the offensiveness. Um, and that what Christ sometimes calls us to do is rather offensive to our sensibilities. And so I think we want to try to make our faith amenable to us. and. Yeah. You know, when we do that, I, I think we, one, we miss out a lot, but, and I don't think that we realize this is a hard thing to do is to follow Christ. It, it's not a, it's not just something, it, it's not simply adapting a political posture, which right. I think sometimes we think that we've made it out to be that in some ways. Or, or to go chasing after respectability, mm -hmm. right? Christ said, Everyone will hate you because of me. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty strong language. Now, he said that to his first followers, and so our context may be different from theirs. But if we're not getting any pushback from the world around us that doesn't know Christ, then we're probably not saying anything of significance. It is, it's okay not to be liked by the wider culture. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's something really that we should suspect is going to happen. Um, it's okay to be different. You know, I have friends, good friends in the Cuban Methodist Church. That is a culture that, um, you know, it's a communist nation. And a lot of the culture is very, uh, very unfriendly to the kind of Christianity that they practice, which is a form of kind of evangelical Pentecostalish Methodism. And they live with that all the time, right? They understand themselves by necessity as a counterculture within that world, as an alternative to the way the rest of the world lives around them. If we're not willing to do that, um, then we're not going to get very far. Hmm. People don't want the same thing from church that they get from MSNBC or Fox News on a Sunday morning. And I think that's why so many uh, traditions are declining. We're not saying anything unique. We're not saying anything particular. We're not giving anyone a different vision of life and challenging them to live into it. Having a Christian mind is going to force us to do that. And I want to be the first to say I don't have this thing mastered. You know, I don't. I don't see my own mind as being entirely Christian. I mean, I wrestle with sin like everyone else. I wrestle with um, big questions like everyone else. And so I, I 
what I'm what I'm suggesting to you on my own behalf is aspirational. I mean, I'm trying to get there with God's help. But um, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. I could go on, but I'll I'll stop. Well, um, kind of as we conclude um, here, I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity of if people wanted to know more about um, you or to read up more things about you or to read up about Firebrand, where should they go? Yeah, thank thank you for that. Firebrand, you can access at um, firebrandmag.com. Uh, we're on Twitter as well. Um, unfortunately, um, <clears throat> Matt Gates also had, there's a Firebrand podcast, but Matt Gates also has, we did not know this, has a podcast called Firebrand, <laughs> but we're not Matt Gates. Just let everyone know. Um, but there's firebrandtalk.com, or excuse me, um, no, at Firebrand Talk. That's our Twitter handle for the podcast. Um, and you can check out United Theological Seminary, where I serve as academic dean at www.united.edu. So thank you. Thanks. I'm on Twitter at UTS Doc. All right. Thanks, Dennis. Well, David, th- thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and to um, have this really, I think, enlightening discussion. And um, hope to have you back on again soon. Thank you. I'd like that. And I appreciate the opportunity, Dennis. Keep up the good work. All right. Take care. God bless. that you enjoyed this uh, episode with David Watson. Um, there are going to be links, uh, links to his podcast, links to his article, links to the book, uh, The Christian Mind by, by Harry Balmers, um available. I've also put in there a link to a, um, an article by a recent guest, Amar Peterman, um, that he talks about apologetics and why he is done doing that. I thought that it was an interesting, I don't know if I want to say counterpoint, but it's an interesting viewpoint kind of about what does it mean to think uh, Christianly, uh, Christian thinking. And, and I thought I might want to put that in there. Um, read the article and let me know what you think. Um, you can always drop me a line. You can um, either respond to the um to the link if you're on Substack. Um there is place to leave comments. You can also uh send me an email at uh church and main all one word at substack.com. Um also just to let you know uh could please consider subscribing. You can subscribe to your um, favorite podcast app. You can also subscribe on Substack by going to uh, the page uh, Church in Maine, all one word uh, dot Substack uh, dot com, and um, you can go there and um, uh, subscribe and uh, receive the your the latest episode um, either on the Substack app or in your email um, inbox. Um, you can also subscribe on the website uh, for Church in Maine, which is churchinmainealloneword.org. Um, and in either place, you can also um, consider leaving a donation if you would like. Uh, just to let you know that um, some of the upcoming episodes might, the schedule might be a little uh, wonky, and um, I want to let you know why. Um, a few weeks ago, um, now a week and a half ago, uh, my uh, mother um, had a stroke, um, and luckily she is doing much better. Um, 
She was discharged from the hospital um, yesterday and is now in rehab. Um, she did. Um, her speech was a bit garbled and she kind of lost some, as they call neglect or had some neglect on her left side. Um, those are both improving um, and hopefully will continue to improve with uh, more rehab. Um, but um, as if any of you might know, when if you've had to deal with um, kind of a family crisis, uh, things have been rather busy, um, spending time at the hospital um, in St. Paul and um, then working of getting her a place for um, for rehab, um, where she'll be for the next few weeks, and just trying to figure life out. So um, it's, just, it's just been a busy time for myself and for my husband. Um, so uh, prayers are always welcomed. Um, continue prayers for uh, my mother as she is healing. And um, But I just wanted to um, explain why things might be a little bit wonky. Usually I try to get these episodes up on Mondays, um, and that has been um, a little bit difficult because you're doing that, you're juggling work. Um, and I'm bivocational, so I'm doing two jobs and also then uh, trying to look after mom. So. Um, that's kind of where things are at right now, but, um, we will, I will work on trying to get these episodes up, um, and running. And we do have a few more episodes coming up in the near future. And, um, if you can, please share this podcast with a friend, um, or a family member and, um, let them know about and help to spread the, the news about church in Maine. So that is it for this episode. This is episode 150 of Church in Maine. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Take care. Godspeed. And I will see you all very soon. <music>